Good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. I've heard from many people that they're enjoying the Prophecy Series and that you're getting a lot out of it. I appreciate uh, that, that word of appreciation. So uh, the Bible is clear. I think uh, I presented it last time. I hope, I hope you found it uh, uh, clear that the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church, the, the catching away of the church by Christ so that the church doesn't have to go through the uh, wrath of God poured out on the earth during the tribulation, this catching away, this rapture is an imminent event. It's, it's, uh, it, it's something that could happen suddenly at any moment. It's unannounced. And so I believe the scriptures are clear that there's no prophetic event that has to take place. Which means, since it's unannounced and it could, it could happen at any moment and it's sudden, that we shouldn't be setting dates to announce the rapture. We shouldn't be setting dates. But yet, people have done so. Let's talk about that for a minute before we look at any scripture. People have been setting dates. Uh, um, I think of in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there, there was the Adventist movement that's still ongoing today, but they set a lot of dates for the Lord's return. You had the Jehovah Witnesses who set dates in 1914, 1928, 1975. And so there's been date setting that's been going on by groups outside of our circles. And then even within our circles, in the Bible-believing movement, uh, in, the, in the independent Baptist uh, churches as well, there have been those who have set dates for the rapture. I just thought back tonight of my lifetime and some of the uh, occurrences where people set dates. How many of you remember the, uh, the buzz around the rapture in the 1970s when the two movies came out, The Thief in the Night and Distant Thunder? How many of you remember that? Okay, you're showing your age. Raise your hand up high. You're showing your age. Okay. Um, I'll never forget those two movies, I'm telling you. In fact, do you remember the song? Okay, do you remember the song that went with the thief in the night? All right. Two men walking up a hill. One disappeared and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all... How many of you remember been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. You say, how do you know that song, Pastor Zach? Because it's seared in my conscience, that's how. <laughs> I'll never forget there was a church in our area that rented a theater and so uh, to show these two films and, and our church group went to, to see these movies and it got my attention. It got my attention. Those movies got my attention. In fact, one time I thought the rapture had happened. My mom and dad had left the house without telling me, and I was begging God for mercy. <laughs> Come to find out they were across the parking lot cleaning the church, and they had already told me they were leaving. I just didn't listen. But anyway, I, was, I thought the rapture had happened. So I remember the buzz around that. And, and, uh, and then there were, there were setting dates that, that, that connected to a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And Hal Lindsey wrote this book, and in it he made a subtle statement implying that Jesus would come in 1988. I want to show you tonight where he got this from. 
Would you take your Bible and turn to Matthew 24? We looked at this before, but let's look at it again. Matthew 24. Everybody turn to Matthew 24, if you will. And look at verses 32 through 34. And so on page 54 of the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey uh, quotes this passage. And, uh, and here's, here's how he interprets it, but let's look at the passage first. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. Now he assumed that the fig tree, it relates to Israel. And so he said, this, is, this relates to Israel, although it doesn't directly say that here. So this, 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 is, this is a challenge. Sometimes we look for things in passages that, that aren't clearly stated, and we find them. And so and now Israel is related to fig trees in the Old Testament in certain passages. So he said, this is Israel, okay? The parable of the fig tree, when the branch is yet tender and putteth forth her leaves. Oh, Israel is budding. Now they have come back to their homeland in 1948. This refers to 1948 when Israel came back to their homeland. Verse 33, so likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. That's the coming of the Lord. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. A generation being 40, 40 years, there it is, 1988. Jesus is coming in 1988 because the generation after, that lives after the time when Israel comes back that generation will not pass away until the Lord comes. And so there was a buzz. I remember I was, I was alive during the 80s, okay? And uh, there was a buzz about the rapture. In fact, a book came out, 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Come in 1988. As Ed Wisnett wrote that book, churches were studying it. It was all over the place. 4.5 million copies were sold. And in 1988, Jesus did not come. 1988 came and went, no coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, Ed Wisnett wrote three more books that uh, didn't sell. Uh, he, he kept on setting dates, setting dates. How many of you remember Y2K, Y2K? Oh, that was a big one. Oh, well, there's a buzz around Y2K the turn of the century, and there, there, there's something going to happen at Y2K, and, and all the computers are going to shut down, and the electric grid's going to shut down, and churches were preaching. And I went to a conference where the pastor got up and preached, this is it, folks! This is it! And I was, I was saying, it can't be, you know, we're, we're not supposed to know. And so, but I'll tell you what, uh, uh, New Year's Eve that night, it was getting closer, to the turn, and I started to think, maybe, maybe there's something to this. I'll never forget. Maybe there's something to it. Midnight came, start of the new year, nothing. It was a dud. A dud. My clock didn't even blink, okay? I re a funny story, though. January 1st, 2000, Stacy and I, that night, the, the first day of the year, Stacy and I decided to go out to eat. We go to this restaurant in the town next to ours, and we order our food, and the lights go out. 
the lights go out and they're out for a long time and finally after 20 minutes, people are talking, it's dark, 20 minutes or so, the wait staff finally comes out and said, folks, we don't know what's going on, we're gonna ask you to leave the restaurant. We walk out of the restaurant, the lights are not only out on the restaurant, there's an interstate next to, uh, near the restaurant, the lights are out there, the whole town, the lights are out and I go, this is it? I get in the car, I never forget, we're driving, you know, I'm driving, next thing you know, I come into Branford, our hometown, and then the lights are on. <laughs> Folks, it was a local power outage. <laughs> oh, don't do that to me, okay? My heart was pounding. I said, this is it, this is it. And I didn't even get my Chili's meal, okay? This is it. Harold Camping famously set two dates. Some of these are sincere people, Bible-believing people, and Harold Camping set a date for 1994. Then 2011, I'll never forget this one because there were billboards up and down I-95 in Connecticut saying the Lord is coming back in 2011. The Lord is coming back. And 2011 came and went, and the Lord did not come back. And to his credit, Harold Camping later humbly acknowledged that he was wrong, and he said, I shouldn't have done that. Christians then believe, this is the last one I remember, last one I remember. Christians believe that on December 21st, 2012, at the end of the Mayan calendar, I, know, I can't remember where they got that from, but that would mark the end of the world. Do you remember the story about Chicken Little, everybody? The sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And then when the sky actually did fall, nobody believed him. Folks, I think that's where we may be today. They shouldn't be setting dates. We shouldn't be setting dates for the second coming of Christ, but that does not mean that it couldn't happen any moment. And so here's what we're going to find in the passage we're going to look at tonight. Even though there's no prophetic events that need to take place for the rapture to begin, there are tribulation conditions that are developing in our day that give us an indication that it may be close. Who's going to get excited? It may be close. Here's the passage. Let's all turn there. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10. I'm going to get all of you excited tonight. That's my goal. Some of you are hard cases, but I'm going to get you excited. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10. Let's look at the passage. Actually, we're going to just read 1 through 4. We'll look at the other verses later. And in this passage, we'll see some tribulation conditions that are developing in our day. Verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Would you stop there? Our gathering together unto him is the rapture, and the rapture in this verse is put in conjunction with the coming of the Lord. And so he's speaking about the coming of the Lord as it relates to the rapture. I beseech you, brethren, concerning this issue, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The day of Christ or the day of the Lord is initiated by the tribulation events and the term at hand is in the perfect tense. They thought it was happening in their day. They had been told by somebody or they had read a letter that was supposedly from the Apostle Paul but somebody had forged 
his name to it. He said, well, I didn't write that letter. Who told you this? They thought we are in the tribulation. We are in the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. We are in it now. By the way, the English word at hand can either mean happening now or happening nearby. In this case, they said, we're in it. And Paul says, no, you're not. Don't be shaken. Don't be troubled. Who told you this? Who wrote that letter? You're not in it. Folks, in the tribulation, in the tribulation period, 80% of the world's population will be killed. They were not in the tribulation period. And so Paul said, don't be shaken by this. Someone's deceived you. Look at verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except, here we go, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the church at Thessalonica falsely believed that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had started, but it hadn't. It hadn't. There are no signs preceding the rapture or the start of the day of the Lord, but yet look at verse 7, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. In other words, Paul was saying, yes, events are uh, developing, Events to prepare for that day are developing in our day, but the day hasn't happened yet. And he said certain conditions must take place before the tribulation really gets going. Now we know this, the rapture doesn't start the tribulation. It's when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. Then there's a gap. And then the tribulation starts. So he said, these certain things have to take place. They haven't taken place. But events are preparing in our day for them to happen. So I, I see in, in these passages that there are certain conditions in the tribulation that are developing in our day. And I would propose tonight that our current world is ripe for these conditions. Our current world is ripe for these conditions. And this gives us the indication that the coming of Christ may be close in time. It doesn't prompt us to set dates, but it motivates us to live with urgency. Let's consider three tribulation conditions found in the passage. The first one is the apostate religion. The apostate religion, the great falling away, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away, Greek word, apostasia. A great falling away from the faith will happen. A great falling away from the faith. Now there have always been movements away from the true faith. Under the broad tent of Christendom or Christianity, there's always been movements away from the faith. Listen to 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. He said there are going to be many false teachers in the church. Many false teachers. Many will follow their pernicious ways. They will draw people out of the church. They will leave movements away from the true faith. This has always been happening. 
since the first century church. But Paul says there's going to be this great falling away, this falling away that must be something, um, must be something unique, large, inclusive. We learn later in the book of Revelation, it's this one world religion, one world apostate religion that develops and forms. Now, before I go any further, I've already named some names in this message, and I'll continue to name names in the rest of the message. There's biblical support for naming names. Erring brethren, apostates, false teachers. Jesus named names. He called out the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees directly. Luke named Elymas as a false prophet. Paul named Hymenaeus and Alexander. Phagellus and Hermogenes, he named them directly. John named Diotrephes, and then he named the Nicolaitans as a group. Now listen to what he, what he said about the Nicolaitans. He said to the church at Pergamos, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I'm going to call out this group, I'm going to name their name, and I'm going to tell you to avoid them, get that doctrine out of the church. I hate this doctrine. I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so if God's church is going to be prepared against the wolves that are attacking the church and feeding us false doctrine, sometimes we have to say, watch this person. Avoid this teaching. This person's teaching falsely. This is an erring, he claims to be a brother, but he's an erring brother or an apostate or a false teacher. Or Avoid this movement. Here's what's wrong with this movement. Here's what's wrong with this denomination. Here's what's wrong with this church. It is a legitimate, a legitimate action of those that preach the truth to name names. So let's, let's, let's consider how this one world church is developing in our day. The book of Revelation describes a final falling away or this worldwide apostate religious system centered in Rome. Would you write that in your notes, everyone? Where is it centered, everyone? It's centered in Rome. Daniel, Daniel prophesied about this. Uh, we see it in Revelation, spelled out more clearly in Revelation 13 and verse 7, uh, and, and excuse me, in, in chapter 17, 13 and 17. This one world economic and religious system led by the Antichrist who calls for worship to himself. He has a false prophet that works with him. And this cultural system as a whole is called in the book of Revelation the great whore. Speaking of the spiritual and religious fornication of idolatry and religious apostasy that's included in this one world religion. Would you take your Bible, hold your place in 2 Thessalonians, turn to uh, Thessalonians, turn to Revelation, 17, if you would with me, please. Revelation 17, look at verse 9. Revelation 17 and verse 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, the great whore, the woman. This false religious system sits on seven mountains. There are seven leaders there as well, but they, 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 
as a whole, the system sits on seven mountains, which is a clear reference to Rome. The ancient city known as the city on seven hills. So this, you pull Daniel and Revelation together, you understand that this, this final world empire is, comes, is a revived Roman one on the earth. So the one world government is a revived Roman rule, and then the, the religious system is seated in Rome as well. And this will be a condition in the tribulation, and that is this great apostasy, this great apostate religion is initiated in Rome. I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. From 1962 to 1965, the Roman Catholic Church called a council. It was actually four different meetings. I think it was 12-day sessions, four different sessions over four years. It's called the Vatican II Council. I've read some of the decrees of the Vatican II Council and they represent a stunning shift in Catholic doctrine and theology. In fact, there are Roman Catholics today that do not accept the Vatican II. They call themselves traditional Orthodox Catholics and they say, we don't accept the Vatican II because it disagrees with Vatican I and all the pronouncements before it. You say, what was the major shift? It It was called an ecumenical council. Vatican II was called an ecumenical council. And here's what they basically said there in this, in this, uh, this conflab, this council. They basically said this, the Roman Catholics are still on the fast track to heaven. We're still on the fast track. So being a Roman Catholic is very important. But we believe that there are others who have a desire for God, however it is expressed, and they'll make it to heaven too. Even the Protestants. Now, oh boy, this is a major shift because the Council of Trent said the Protestants were anathema. They're a curse to hell. In fact, in the original councils of the church, they said that the Protestants would not make it to heaven. The Protestants were outside the Catholic Church and salvation only comes through the Roman Catholic Church. But Vatican II said, no, we're going to call them the separated brethren. And I'm quoting now, here's Vatican II, decree on ecumenism, I'm quoting the document. Though we believe them, the Protestants, though we believe the Protestants to be deficient in some respects... They have by no means been deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation. They're on the slow track, we're on the fast track, but they're still going to get there. They're deficient, but they're going to make it. That's why it was called an ecumenical council. Well, this fueled the ecumenical movement that is growing in our day. In fact, some evangelical leaders praised this movement and signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, a document signed in 1994. I would encourage you to look that up and you'd be shocked who signed it and from what groups they they were from. Evangelical people praised this movement by the Catholic Church. The World Council of Churches linked up with the Roman Catholic Church. 
in, in this ecumenical endeavor. The National Council of Churches, which is the U.S. arm of the World Council of Churches, consists of 36 Protestant, Anglican, and Orthodox denominations. They are the biggest advocates of the ecumenical movement in our country. They have well over 140,000 churches in their membership and 50 million members. So the ecumenical movement led by the Roman Catholic Church is growing in America and then it's growing around the world. Now other religions are participating in the ecumenical movement, promoting unity under the least common denominator. Muslims, Hindus, Spiritists, Animists. Look at this next picture. This was 2022, September 14th and 15th. The seventh Congress of the leaders of world and traditional religions. There's the Pope leading the the Congress, and you have Muslims, Hindus, Spiritists, Animists, those from Judaism, Orthodox Church. Leaders from all of these religions joining together in ecumenical unity. In response to the Pope's ecumenical work and his, his statements at these Congresses, the Muslims have built the Abrahamic family house in Abu Dhabi. It's a worship center. This is a picture of it. I mean, uh, it's an amazing facility. It goes way beyond this. But right there, you have a mosque. You have a temple to Judaism. And then you have a, a Christian worship center uh, to, for Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and, and other Christians. And it's this world religion center. Folks, we are, we are living in a time of great apostasy. There is this great ecumenical movement that is leading to a general apostasy that spans the globe like never before. It's led by the Roman Catholic Church. And the more I, I look at these conditions that are developing in our day, I say to myself, boy, the coming of Christ could be close. It could be close. The one world government, the one world church, it's all coming together. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians, everyone. First of all, we see the apostate religion, that condition which is developing in our day. Number two we see uh, the condition of the man of sin being revealed. He said, uh, hey, these tribulation events can't happen unless the Antichrist re is revealed. So you're not in the tribulation. Look at verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be come a falling away first, this great apostasy. We learn later this one world religion that develops. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Wow. Calls himself God, calls worship to himself, leads the world. The Bible says in Daniel 9 that this man of sin, or the prince that shall come, Daniel calls him the prince that shall come, will be revealed when he makes a covenant or before he makes a covenant with peace, of peace with Israel. He makes a treaty of peace with the nation of Israel. This man who is able to, to bring peace to Israel and to the world, 
who has the power of personality to do what others have not been able to do and bring peace to Israel and to the world. He is filled with Satan. He is the Antichrist. Hold your place here. Let's go back to Daniel 9. Dr. Amsbaugh talked about this. Let's be reminded. Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. Would you look at that again with me? About this man of sin, this Antichrist, the prince that shall come. Look at Daniel 9, 26. And after threescore and two weeks, those are weeks of years. Sixty-two weeks of years, which were preceded by seven weeks of years. Sixty-nine weeks of years shall Messiah be cut off, and Daniel nailed it. He gave the exact timing when Jesus would enter Jerusalem and be crucified. But not for himself. Now look at this. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. Now we know that the Romans did that in A.D. 70. After Christ died, he rose again and then ascended. He, uh, uh, after that, in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. And the people of the prince that shall come are the ones that would do it. Now the prince is not on the scene yet, but the people of the prince, and that's the people of the final world empire, the Romans which means the Antichrist must come out of a revived Roman Empire from the Roman world. This Antichrist must come out of the Roman world. He's the prince. Look at verse 27. And he, that's the prince that shall come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the, who's the many? Well, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Oh, that's the Jewish people, which is... Uh, the people of the context that Daniel's discussing. So, so this Antichrist is going to confirm a peace treaty, a covenant with Israel for one week, for one week of years, seven years, for seven years, but in the middle of that week, after three and a half years, he's going to show himself for who he really is, the enemy of Israel and the enemy of God. And when we read the book of Revelation, we understand the details there. So this passage assumes the protection of Israel by the Antichrist. The protect, protection of Israel by the Antichrist assumes that they're settled in their land. And also, you'll see from the passage, they have a rebuilt temple. They have a temple to worship with and in. Since 1948, when the Jews came back to their homeland and settled back in their land, everyone has been looking for such a man who could bring peace to this region. You know how many U.S. presidents have claimed to, they've claimed to make peace in Israel? I, I, you know, uh, they have these they, gatherings with the Palestinians or the Arabs and the, the Israel, and then they get you know, together afterwards and hold hands and claim some peace and then you know two months later they're shooting rockets at each other you say boy that didn't last very long have you noticed that how many of you've noticed that boy that peace didn't last very long there were the Camp David Accords 1978 Jimmy Carter the Madrid Conference 1991 and 93 George H.W. Bush had to go back a second time the Oslo Accords Bill Clinton 
And that was an ongoing thing. That was like three years worth of work. And Bill Clinton said, I think we have peace. The conference in Aqaba, George W. Bush. Obama pretty much sided with the Palestinians. And then Donald Trump, Donald Trump went in there and brokered peace, a peace deal between Israel and multiple Arab countries. But they're all, they're all back to where they were pretty much before. No one has brought lasting peace to that region. The time is ripe, everyone, for someone to step up and miraculously solve the problem in the Middle East. And our passage here says that the Antichrist will be that person. He'll be filled with Satan, and through the power of his personality, he will bring peace not only to Israel, but to the whole world. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. Go back there. This is interesting. 2 Thessalonians, go back to our passage that, that we are, are, are focusing on here. 2 Thessalonians 2, look at verses 7 and 8. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. In other words, events are developing in their day and in our day to lead up to this. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. It seems, it seems from the passage that there's a restraining influence on, on the earth that is keeping Satan back from fulfilling his full design. And, and, and that restraining influence has to be removed for the Antichrist to be revealed. I believe this speaks of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is using us. We're the convicting presence on the earth. We're the salt and light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said to his, to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Well, which is it? Both. He's lighting the world through us. And we are the salt and light. We are the convicting presence. We bring conviction to the world. We restrain evil by our strong stand for God and for morality. And so when the Holy Spirit's removed, then the Antichrist can be revealed and Satan can do his work. Well, when is the Holy Spirit removed? At the rapture when God's people are removed. And so the Holy Spirit's restraining influence is removed at the rapture when those who have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit are taken away. And then the Antichrist can be revealed. Today, today, there is a desperate need for peace in Israel. You look at the news and you say, how can this go on any longer? They keep firing at each other. I mean, they're, 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 you know, Iran uh, is making nukes and, 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 and you got, you know, these nearby Arab countries that have, that have plans, they're, 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 they're funding groups, terrorist groups who are doing work. They're doing work themselves. They're open about it. They have celebrations about it. They're celebrating the demise of Israel. And someone's going to come on the scene who's going to bring lasting peace. And the time is ripe today for that person to come. The Holy Spirit is using us in this dispensation to restrain it, but there's going to come a point where it's ready. And I see this accelerating. Let's look at one more condition. We see the apostate religion. 
the man of sin revealed, last of all, the temple rebuilt. Look at the passage one more time. Last point, everyone. Look at the temple being rebuilt or being there in Israel. Look at verse 4. Who opposes and exalted himself, the Antichrist, above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the where, everyone? The temple of God. Where does he sit? In the temple of God. And he calls worship to himself. The man of sin will sit in God's temple. And in Daniel's chapter 9 through 11, Matthew 24, we learn that he commits the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. Folks, there is no temple today in Jerusalem. But plans are being made to build one as I speak. Plans to rebuild the temple are accelerating in our day. First of all, the condition for the rebuilding of the temple started with the Zionist movement of the Jews coming back to their homeland to repopulate Israel. Before 1948, there was a small remnant of Jews in Israel. There's always been Jews in Israel. It's not that the Jews came in and took over, you know, from the Palestinians. The Palestinians did not have a nation state. They were nomadic people. The Jews have always had a settle, settlement in Israel. They're just more Jews came in 1948 to reform their nation state. Later, the Arabs sought to take back the land and their efforts were thwarted in the Six-Day War, this miraculous war. And since Jewish leaders have been raising money openly to finance the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, they, they not only have plans that they, they publish, but they, they're building models. There's a group known as the Faithful of the Temple Mount or the Temple Mount Faithful who commissioned a model of the temple to be built. And so there are groups in Israel that are open about it. They're raising money. They want to rebuild the temple and they want to do it soon. Take your Bibles and I'm going to get you excited, okay? Who's with you? Who's still with me? Say amen. I'm going to get you excited. Everybody take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 40, if you would. Ezekiel chapter 40. See, I'm covering more verses than just three, folks. I'm just saying. Okay. Ezekiel. Chapter 40. The exact measurements... For this new temple are included in the scriptures in Ezekiel 40 through 42. Look what it says. In the uh, first verse, Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, in the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after the city was smitten, in the selfsame day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel said, and brought me thither, in the visions of God brought me, he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, an angelic man, folks, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. This same description is given in Revelation Chapter 21, verse 15, John got a, the, the, a parallel revelation of an angel with a measuring reed who said, I'm going to show you the new Jerusalem. 
So this is a prophetic statement here. This angel shows up. He has a reed to measure things in his hand. And he stood in the gate. Verse 4. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about. And in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit, and a handbreadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed, and you keep reading, and he measures everything. This is this tall, this is this wide. And what you realize as you read through this is that this temple that's being described, the exact measurements are being described and given. These measurements do not match Solomon's temple. The measurements of Solomon's temple, it doesn't match. As you know, Solomon had a very ornate temple, and his was unique. It was destroyed. This does not match Zerubbabel's temple. As you know, Zerubbabel's temple was less ornate and was different than Solomon's temple. And so it doesn't match the measurements of, of either one. You say, well, then which temple is it? What temple is it? Take your uh, Bible and turn the page to Ezekiel 43. And we'll see. Ezekiel chapter 43. Afterward he brought me to the gate, even to the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Does that sound familiar? That's, that matches the description of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. The glory of God came and filled the temple. His voice was like the noise of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. Look at verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Verse 7, and he said unto me, son of man, the, the same designation that Jesus used for himself more than any other. He called himself son of man. It's used of Ezekiel in a symbolic way. Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of the Lord. Say it with me, everyone. Forever. Forever. I'm coming. I'm going to take over this place. I'm going to fill this new temple with glory. And I will be with my people forever. I'm not leaving. I'm coming physically, I'm coming personally, and I'm not leaving. This is the future temple. The following passages describe the, the, the religious worship in the millennial period, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And God gives the exact measurements. He says, here's what that temple needs to look like. And if anybody's reading, 
you could put together plans. And there are people today who are. And this movement of rebuilding the temple is accelerating. Little by little in our day, all the elements are coming together in preparation for when the temple will be rebuilt. For years, the Jews have prayed at the Wailing Wall. They, have, they, they, they don't have a temple. All they have left is, is this wall to, to go to. They pray at the Wailing Wall while the Muslim Dome of the Rock is in view in the, in the background on the temple grounds. How many of you think that upsets the Jewish people? that there's a mosque on the temple grounds. And so they pray and they pray and they pray all the time looking over that wall. And if someone makes a bad move, they're going in there and they're going to take it over. And it could happen at any time. They're talking about it openly. Their plans are public. They're raising money for the new temple. They probably already raised it. They have models. They have paper plans. It's accelerating in our day. And at some point, they won't be able to contain themselves any longer. And they'll throw the Muslims out and rebuild the temple. I believe that there are conditions developing in our day that are, that are leading us to the tribulation. I see them accelerating. I see them coming together just as God said. I see this apostate world religion forming. It's forming quickly. We see the desperate need for someone to broker peace in Israel and make it lasting it, it's, it's ready, it's ripe for that to happen. The, the condition for the Antichrist to bring peace to the world and to Israel, that condition is here. And then plans to rebuild the temple. In the model prayer, we are told to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now there's a lot of meaning there. But I think, I think we can pray that specifically in our day to a degree of authentic anticipation never more experienced by Christians in the past. We can look at what's going on around us. I'm not setting a date. Who heard me? <laughs> I'm not setting a date. But I'm here to tell you, if you're aware and you know your Bible, you should be looking around going, it's going to happen. And it may be real quick. Thy kingdom Thy kingdom come. The Bible ends by saying surely, Jesus saying surely, I come quickly. And John said, even so, come Lord Jesus. And today we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. As we conclude, let's conclude with these thoughts. Conditions are ripe for Jesus to return. Tribulation conditions are developing in our day. If he does return, let's be found watching and working, ready for the coming of our Savior.